0: will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today I am honored to have Marjorie Willicott, PhD, on the show. Marjorie is Emeritus Professor and Prior Chair of the Department of Human Physiology and member of the Institute of Neuroscience at the University of Oregon. She taught courses in neuroscience and rehabilitation as well as complementary medicine and meditation. She is president of the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and research director for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. Marjorie has received over $7.2 million in research funding for her research in child development, rehabilitation, and most recently, meditation and spiritual awakening. She has published more than 200 scientific articles and written or co-edited eight books. Her latest book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of the Scientific Mind, Here's her research as a neuroscientist with her self-revelations about the mind's spiritual power. Welcome to the program, Marjorie. So uh, Marjorie, let's just jump right in um, your book, Infinite Awareness, The Awakening of a Scientific Mind. Here you are, PhD, neuroscientist, and wow, you are involved in this beautiful, really new world mindset. That's what I'll call it, like David Lorimer likes to to say. So let's start at the very beginning, because I know this story really did begin in your childhood. So tell us a little bit about who influenced you as you were growing up and how you grew up.
1: First of all, I should say that it was, first of all, my parents. And I realized only now how lucky I was to have the parents that I had. And that's because they decided, um, perhaps right after World War II, shortly after I was born, that they wanted to go back to nature and live a life that was a little closer to nature. So they bought an acre of land in the suburbs of Southern California, And they ended up having um, a little cottage that they built themselves with their own hands, two bedroom little house for us, and also rabbits and goats and ducks and chickens, and then a big garden in the the whole front part of the acre. And so I spent my days out there as a little kid, like wandering around this place and enjoying the animals and just having a most magical time. And I do remember that when I was a little kid, Somebody asked me at that point what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I did mention that I wanted to be a horse and they looked a little surprised and they said, that's not a career option for you. And of course I said, well then, can I go ahead and have a horse? And I often think, why did I say that? And I think part of it was that I was really connected with animals and there was this wonderful sense of the joy of that connection with animals. But also I had a certain sense in watching some of the adults around me that they were very serious and I didn't want to be serious like those adults right. when I grew up. I wanted to still have fun. So anyway, I did finally get a horse when I was in the seventh grade after my parents first gave me a Jersey cow, thinking that was more practical. but um, So I did have that wonderful uh, life in nature, I would say, but in addition to that, my father loved books and art and from the time i was four years old i learned to actually write my name so i could get a library card and he took us to two different libraries on two towns on either side of us on every single friday night and we would check out like 10 books from the library and then i would read them voraciously during the week and i realized that there was something about the magic of going into the library and seeing all that knowledge on the shelves and exploring the shelves and what was there that was just wonderful. And I just ate that that sort of environment up. And then on the other hand, my mother loved nature and music. And so when I was seven years old, um, I began playing the flute and then the oboe and I was in the elementary school orchestra in town and I kept up my music going to summer music camps all the way through high school. And actually I first majored in music in college before going on to get my PhD in neuroscience. So there was something really, really sweet about that time as a child and i also do remember that i've in fact i'm surprised about this but at about the age of five or six i'm guessing i was outside with my sister one day in the garden and somehow the topic of god came up and i said to her if there is a god i feel like we should dedicate our life to god to really understanding what and who that God is, because that's the most important thing in the world. Now, I didn't know yet. But even at the age of five or six, there was that curiosity and that yearning to understand what this world was all about. So that was the start.
0: You know, it's really interesting. Our our backgrounds are very similar. I grew up on a farm, we had pigs and chickens and a big garden. And uh, it was just you know, so magical. And, and boy, did I love to go to the library. I hope people still do that these days. But, you know, you get your library card and just walk out with that big stack of books. And, and, you know, when you when you talk about also, speaking of God, you know, with your sister, I, I think of it as you remembering, I'm, you know, young children are still even at five or six, still so close to the source. And, remembering maybe even with the library, that hall of knowledge that all the NDEers talk about and, and just that, that knowledge that you wanted to sink in. Um, it's, it's such a beautiful, what a great background as a child. Uh, and so then to move forward, I know your eighth grade teacher and then your 11th grade English teacher influenced you. So can you briefly tell us about that?
1: Sure. I, I think that, yes, that first moment was in the eighth grade, and he was my science teacher um, in a general science class, our first science class we had, and we were just doing a simple exercise in class one of those days um, of the week, and we were being asked to describe, um, from having read our textbook, how ice moved into water as it moved up in temperature, and then changed its state into gas, into steam, as it moved up into temperature even more. And so I simply wrote down my short little description of all of those changes in state with temperature and didn't think a lot about it. And after he had taken up our papers, he called me outside of the class, which is highly unusual, into the corridor. And he then said, Marjorie, he said, I was really impressed with your description of these changes in state of water through all of these different changes in temperature. And he said, I really think that." you may be a scientist one day. And it was just a startling thing for me. And yet I was, I was honored in a certain sense that you should say that. And yet it seems so simple and straightforward. So it was this fascinating moment in a certain sense that I remember to this day. And then when I then moved on in this case to the 11th grade in high school, now I was taking American literature and A number of us were in a class with a man named Mr. John O'Neill, who I still remember lovingly to this day. And I remember in the first week of class, as he was talking to us about American literature, he realized we knew nothing about literature at all and nothing about the philosophy and the background on which American literature was based. And he said, you guys, we're gonna have to stop right now with American literature and I'm gonna have to take you back to the ancient Greeks so you can understand their philosophy and how we got to where we are in American literature. And he told us about Plato's allegory of the cave. And if any of your listeners don't know that story from Plato, I highly recommend it because that started me on my spiritual quest in many ways because it was about, again, somebody that is locked away in a cave with other people underground and then is released out into um, the daylight outside of the cave. And at first is blinded by the light and then begins to understand the amazing miracle of this light tries to go back down to the cave to explain this to his fellow prisoners that are still down there. And they basically don't believe him and want to get rid of him because he's disturbing their understanding of the world. So that was my opening. And the other thing Mr. O'Neill did is he had been to the University of Chicago where they have the great books program. And he introduced us to all of these great books of the Western world. He also had us write a precy, a short summary of an article from these major magazines of that era, which were Scientific American or Saturday Review of Books or The New Yorker or The Atlantic. And he talked about our entering the intellectual stream. And I still remember my best friend, Karen, and I would talk about being intellectual streamers at that time, and we were so excited about this. And the last thing he did was he introduced me to William James, who wrote the Varieties of Religious Experience, the book that I highly recommend to everyone, even though he wrote it in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And in that book, he talks about even then that most medical professionals thought that religious experiences were just basically neurotic symptoms of someone that doesn't really understand the world. And he said, it's not the case that they don't understand the incredible transformative power of these experiences and the validity of these experiences. So that was one more moment where Mr. O'Neill, as I called him, um, really awakened me to a world that was out there ready to be explored and understood at a much deeper level.
0: Right. And it just shows you how influential these teachers can be for, I will say, a child, even in 11th grade and eighth grade and even younger. And and we need to start remembering that because it's it's so important, just wonderful mentors and what they can do, what they can do for a young person. So yeah. how did you decide between music and becoming a scientist? I know you, you studied music first, so...
1: Yeah. So what happened is that as I was going through music um, during my junior high, high school programs, et cetera, and going to summer music camps, I was highly encouraged to go on in music and University of Southern California had a great music program. And so I thought, well, I really do like music, though I also have this love for science. So maybe I will go ahead and start first with music and then move on into science. And it was interesting after my four years of training in music, I realized that this really wasn't the career that would be the best for me in terms of the high amount of energy one puts into practicing eight hours a day or more to actually be a top rate musician. And that I would be much better in the area of neuroscience which I also loved and still adding music into my life as an avocation. vocation. And so I still played in chamber music groups really most of the rest of my life. I still play duets with my best friend Karen when I go to Germany to visit her I play bring my oboe when she plays her cello so I found that in fact it was the love of neuroscience and trying to understand a a question that I asked when I was back in Mr. O'Neill's class, which was, if we do have a soul, is it possibly associated with the brain? And can I figure out how it might be associated with the brain? So that was one of the things I think that naively I thought I might be able to understand (laughs) when I went to college in neuroscience. Wow. And is that the same Karen
0: that you had the conversation with in in school? (laughs) Definitely. Cool. She
1: was my best friend all the way through college. She went on to Stanford University and then into teaching, being the head of Stanford University study program in Berlin, which is she's still doing to this day. So,
0: wow. Yeah. Wow. Those friendships are just, are just magical. So yes. moving forward a little bit, um, you began your um, studying for your PhD and mm-hmm. you had a project with sea slugs and that kind of set you on your path. So tell us about
1: that. Yes, and I might just in fact, take one step back to my childhood again because it was humorous that I still remember to this day when I was about five again, I was outside um, on the lawn um, with my sister. She, My sister reminds me she was there too. And my sister had just killed a gopher because he was digging tunnels in our lawn. And I saw this dead gopher sitting there and I thought, what on earth is inside of that gopher? I wanna know. And so I went inside the kitchen and I got a little paring knife and I cut open his belly and I looked inside and it was like magical to see all of the stuff that was inside of that gopher skin. So I think that that sort of set the pace for me perhaps in my scientific career. So then now we go to 20 years later. So I'm now in graduate school at the University of Southern California. After doing my music degree, I'm now in neuroscience and I am in the laboratory And I'm actually now having opened up a a little animal that's about the same size as a gopher called Nabonaxonermis, the sea slug, and looking inside to understand the cells of its brain and how they actually work to control its behavior. And it's late at night, I'm all by myself, and I have a loudspeaker or audio monitor hooked up that actually lets me hear the nerve cells that are firing as I'm doing the experiment. So I impale two of these beautiful golden neurons in his little brain um with these microelectrodes and i hear them talking to each other and they're going like this brr and it was like this incredible feeling of being part of the mystery of the universe, like listening into the brain of this little tiny animal as it is having cells talk to each other as it's then beginning to perform this movement in his body as he's um, going through these actions. And it, it was again, magical. I had the best time in graduate school feeling like I was truly beginning to understand some of the mysteries of the universe. And then taking maybe just a step forward, I then finish my PhD and I go on to my job at the University of Oregon, and now I have switched from looking at single cells in lower animals to um, developing of motor skills in young children. And I'm looking at children that are maybe somewhere between like about four to five months of age, and just after they've begun walking, maybe 12 or 14 months of age. And what we're doing here is something akin to what I did in graduate school. I asked this little child to stand on a platform and he can't quite balance yet, but he's holding onto a little toy castle in front of him. And then I put on these sensors over the muscles of the um, upper and lower legs so that I can hear the muscles talking to each other as the child's learning to try to figure out how to balance. And so I just move the platform a little forward, the child sways backward, and then I hear the muscles begin to actually get activated. They fire on the front part of the leg. And then I move it in the other direction and I hear the muscles on the back part of the leg. And I watch over time how they go from being slightly disorganized and weak in their firing patterns to this beautiful orchestrated pattern that happens after they begin to learn to stand and walk. And it's like, again, almost like their muscles have turned into a little orchestra with these wonderful, like orchestrated harmonies or chords that are all happening at once in a beautiful way. And again, how does the brain do that with this child just magically falling, getting up, falling, getting up as they go around their house and suddenly their muscles all are beginning to move perfectly. So those were some of the things I was doing as a young professor and a graduate student in my early career. Oh, how fascinating and how fun. So were, were some of your fellow students or colleagues,
0: were they as curious about the mystery part and that the possibly the questions about the soul and the brain part
1: as you? Well, you know, I think I'd say most of them were not. I do know though, Howard, I met one other student that was just about to start a PhD program after I had come to the University of Oregon and she was at the University of Washington. She was a physical therapist that wanted to go into work on children. And at their PhD program in the medical school, they said, you cannot do research on humans. The only valid research is on primates or lower because then you can do real studies like you know, doing dissections. And she said, I don't wanna work on primates, I wanna work on children and understand how they work. And so she left that program and came to my program at the University of Oregon and she had a spiritual side as well. And we are still friends to this day and we even write spiritual papers together as well as rehabilitation papers. So she was one person that had that same yearning to really understand at the deep level, the way the universe works. Wow. Wow. So
0: you're a scientist, you're a neuroscientist and very enmeshed in that world. And then you went on a meditation retreat with your sister. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that and how that changed your life.
1: Yeah. And I should mention that my sister had had very different if we wanna call it career than I did. She went to college, um, learned to teach Spanish and tried teaching Spanish in the high school setting for a couple of years and then decided that wasn't for her. And she went to Hawaii and took some years off and just decided to live in a commune and explore that phase wow. of her life You know, in the 1970s. So I also was just the opposite. I was like, em- em- just like enmeshed in graduate school and all of this research and thinking this was the way to live one's life. And my boyfriend would call my sister a bubblehead because she wasn't doing what we were doing. So that was sort of the start of it. And then what happened is that she invited me after just giving me a little bit of a taste of meditation at one point when we were together at my parents at Christmas, she invited me to a meditation retreat with this um, meditation master named Swami Muktananda in the Catskill mountains of New York. And I was skeptical. I mean, again, I um, didn't really know a lot about these things. and again, thought my sister was not the sort of person that was interested in the, like the deep meaning of science. So, <laughs> I nevertheless was intrigued by the little bit she had told me earlier on. So I came to this meditation retreat. And I remember in the very first meditation session, they said, now what was going to happen is this meditation master was going to come around and he was going to initiate every one of us there. And they said the initiation was a spiritual awakening. And I thought, "Well, that, is nothing I know anything about. I'm skeptical, but I'm here. So why not just put aside my skepticism for the weekend and see what happens? And so as he walked around the room, um, initiating people, he came to me and he put his fingers on the bridge of my nose and right between my eyebrows. And as he did that, what I felt was something that felt like a current of electricity, a little bit like a mini lightning bolt that went from his fingers down inside of my being to the very center of the core of my being. And I could feel the exact point where it stopped, which is my heart. And I could feel this energy then radiating out from my heart and it felt like an amazing, like liquid love or nectar flowing out through my whole being and beyond. And the words that came to mind were, I'm home, I'm home. My heart is my home. It was this feeling that finally I know who I am and what life is about at a very different level than I knew before. And what was most interesting as well is that after that happened and I got back on the plane to go back home to my university position at this time in Virginia, I was holding his spiritual biography which is called Play of Consciousness and looking at him and saying, who are you? And what on earth have you given me? I had no idea. But the very next morning after I returned home, I woke up spontaneously at 5 a.m. and I began to meditate. And I have meditated every day since because somehow I knew that that experience I had had in that workshop, I could access again. It was simmering just below the surface of my awareness. If if I quieted my mind, I could tap into it again. And that has never changed. That's now part of my life. And how many years ago was this? That was 1976, which is over 40 years ago. So it was kind of like a Kundalini awakening that,
0: that people talk about, yeah, just that
1: definitely, right. And I didn't even know about kundalini awakenings back then. Yes. I began. I'm a scientist, but you're right. After that happened, I began then little by little to begin to try to understand what had happened to me. And um, in fact, perhaps I already told you that I just wrote a paper that came out this last year on um, a study of people that say they've had kundalini awakenings, these spiritual transformative experiences. And I was amazed to see how many people, this was a study of, I think, like about 300 plus people have had experiences that were very similar to mine in different settings. Some Sometimes spontaneous awakenings, sometimes part of a near-death experience. Um, sometimes they're reading a spiritual book and it happens, or they may be in a meditation setting and it is awakened during meditation.
0: Yeah, wow. Wow, so here you are changed by this one experience, I mean, transformed, which is I think really difficult for people to hear unless they or understand unless they've been through something like that themselves, which all people can have that experience, you know, as mm-hmm. they they explore more deeper meditation or whatever it may be. but so here you are a scientist and now here you've had this experience. So how did your life change after that? And how did you merge these two worlds?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a very interesting thing, actually looking back on it to watch, because first of all, I should mention that when I first would tell people about this experience, I would always talk about that was my sister's meditation teacher because I was afraid again even to mention that I might actually think that this was valid. Um, And it was because I was so worried about my scientific colleagues thinking that I would not be a credible person to work with. And in fact, um, I remember that when I would tell some people about this, you would see like this veil go over their eyes or a slight look of fear in their eyes that and they would change the subject because they did not wanna know about it. And so I quickly learned that you don't bring this up with your colleagues. and. I should say at the same time, I was meditating every morning and having my own experiences. And I also began to have a meditation center in my house where people would come for meditation. So during the day, it's a little bit like Clark Kent and Superman in a certain sense. During the day, I talk in neuroscience. And then in the evening during the meditation program, I have these wonderful conversations with people that have also had these spiritual awakenings. And we share a very different world. And this happened for probably 25 years. And I should say that my dear husband who also likes to meditate never could quite understand these two sides of me because we would bring scientists over for a dinner party. And he would start talking about his favorite topics like um, complementary medicine and acupuncture or something like that. And I would kick him under the table and politely help him change the subject because I was so worried that my scientists would not consider me credible. And so what happened is finally, after about 25 years of this, I didn't like leading these two separate lives. And I said, I really need to begin to put them together. And so what I decided to do was to start doing research on meditation in my laboratory. At the university. And the beauty is that I already had tenure. I was a full professor. And so I could really add in this extra research on top of the other rehabilitation research with no one really um, being concerned about it. And so I began to get graduate students interested in meditation. And we began to do research on looking at changes in the brain with meditation and finding out that, in fact, our attentional abilities get much, much stronger when we begin to focus, for example, on our breath and meditation. And we begin to be able to. Focus on a particular topic for much longer periods of time. And so I had fun writing up those articles with my graduate students as well. So I think that that's began to be how I began to move forward in trying to put these two sides of my world together.
0: I heard you in an interview talking about another researcher who was interested in meditation and wanted to do some research. And they were they were turned down because they wanted to do it with graduate students or something and and can you tell us a little bit about that they didn't Right. It,
1: so it, it's a very interesting phenomenon this is actually one of um, my friends who lives in canada he's still teaching at a university in canada and he has a phd and he has written many many articles on meditation and in fact a very well-known um, book on meditation and when he um asked the department whether he could actually have graduate students um, to do research on meditation. They said, no, and this is a psychology department. And they said, no, they said that um, in effect, he wasn't, what do I want to even use, he, he wasn't okayed, he wasn't, um, credentialed as far as they were concerned for actually leading graduate students in this type of research. And it was basically because they did not consider meditation research valid. It had to be the standard research, like my um, previous student, whose name is Anne, was told when she was at the medical school in the University of Washington that um, doing, there's a certain scientific worldview that puts the type of research that is valid into a narrow box. And meditation is not in that narrow box for most departments at most universities. It's changing gradually. And there are a few places now, for example, Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin in Madison has students doing research on meditation because he tries to make it as relevant to the real world as he possibly can so that people can really see its pragmatic value. So here and there it's beginning to change and that's encouraging. And didn't you bring in meditation
0: um, techniques to the seniors that were going to med school
1: or in med school? Yeah. So that was, so that was about 10 years before um, I decided in fact, to go ahead and retire. And I said, I've been doing meditation all these years and I've been doing research on meditation. I would like to share what I've learned with the students in our pre-med program at the university of Oregon. And so i went to my department chair and I said, um, I'd like to propose having a senior class. These are called capstone classes of about 30 students, um, where we would talk about whether um, these um, complementary modes of meditation, like, um, for example, acupuncture, um, for example, um, let's see, homeopathy, um, chiropractic, things like that are valid or not. And I want to explore that with my students. And he said, oh, no, no, our students would not be interested in that. I'm sorry. Maybe you should give like a, a general course to the non-majors at the university, the freshmen, and maybe they would like to take a course like that. And I said, excuse me, I really wanna talk about science and whether this is valid. And why don't you just let me try it for one term and see what happens. And so of course we put it on the books for one term and immediately it is full within the first like few like days of registration and it has a waiting list like 20 students long because all of these seniors want to take it. Absolutely. So, so, you know, and I taught that course for like 11 years and I loved teaching it. And it's partly because, like the professors, the students initially are somewhat skeptical about these things. They're trained in uh, our traditional medicine and um, when they're in um, their undergraduate programs. And yet, when they come into my class and I say, we are going to actually do research papers to look at the validity of, for example, meditation or acupuncture or um, homeopathy or a a number of these things, chiropractic, et cetera, um, energy healing, for example, you are going to do a paper and you're gonna look at the evidence for or against a modality that you pick and you're gonna then write up a summary that says um, what you think and would this be a good particular modality to actually bring into a medical school in the future. And when the students were through with that course, they ended up very often being totally converted to the fact that these are another thing to add traditional medicine. And some of them decided to go to, for example, a naturopathic school of medicine and others said, maybe I can add one of these modalities to my traditional medical training that I'm gonna be going into. So it was wonderful to see that shift in their understanding by just being curious.
0: I think this is a great time to wrap up this part of the interview. However, next week, Marjorie will return to continue telling us about her fascinating research and her journey about her self-revelations about the mind's spiritual power. I hope you can join us. Thank you so much for listening in today.